All right. Well, good morning. We are going to be looking at Esther chapter 8 this morning, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We come to the last two sermons of this series through the book of Esther. We're going to cover all of chapter 8 uh, today and then chapters 9 and 10 next week. And as we approach the text today, remember that Haman, uh, the enemy in this text, is now gone. He's been executed for conspiring against the queen and the Jewish people. However, the edict that Haman had written against the Jews is still in force, and so now the second part of Esther's mission must be accomplished to save the Jews from destruction. As we learn in the text today, since a royal edict cannot be revoked, it must be countered with another edict that is equally binding. And so that's what we come to in the text today. Go ahead and stand and follow along. I'm going to be reading all of chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace that you have lavished upon us. We thank you for the blessing of coming together here in this place to sing to you, to declare the greatness of your name. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've entrusted us with your word and that by it we can know you. And so help us today to know you, Lord, to believe in you, to trust in who you are and what you have done. And Lord, fill us with your love, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. See in verse 1, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So Haman's wealth, his property is turned over to Esther after Haman is executed. And it says that the king did this that very day. He wastes no time in following up on the punishment of the enemy of the Jews and rewarding those who were the heroes. We're going to see from verse 1 on here that Mordecai begins to take the place of Haman. Likely in this chapter, in this verse, the first time that Mordecai and the king have come face to face. Mordecai replaces Haman, but notice from verse 1, his uh, promotion is connected to Esther. Notice what it says, for Esther had told what he was to her. Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her. He's given a royal audience because of his relationship to Esther and not on his own merit. Now, that is not at all to say that, that uh, Mordecai hadn't done something worthy of honor. We know that he had. He saved the king's life, but the king had already taken care of honoring him for that. This promotion and this invitation into the presence of the king is all because of how he is related to Esther. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, 
and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So the, the king gives the signet ring, which was on Haman, to Mordecai. And it signifies now that Mordecai has the authority that Haman once had, and with that, the power to sign royal edicts. And then Esther puts Mordecai in charge of Haman's property, which is another sign that Mordecai is replacing Haman. It's a part of this great reversal that takes place in the book of Esther. And now Mordecai controls Haman's wealth. Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now consider this scene and what's happening here. The physical actions that accompany Esther pleading. She's falling and weeping certainly bring an intensity to what is happening here. She begs the king to avert, which is literally to pass over or to reverse the evil of Haman and his plot. Now, we're going to find out that it's impossible for that to happen. It's impossible for the edict that has been uh, sealed with the king's signet ring to be overlooked or just forgotten or passed over. This pleading here is somewhat reminiscent of Abraham pleading for the people of Sodom in Genesis 18 and also of Moses pleading for the Israelites in Numbers chapter 14. Esther is literally begging Ahasuerus to intercede and stop Haman's genocidal plan. Verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther... Esther rose and stood before the king. The golden scepter means what? It signals that Esther finds favor again with the king. And he's encouraging her to rise in his presence. And she does and pleads on behalf of the Jewish people. If it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, Esther here is arguing based on the king's personal fondness for her, as well as his judgment of what is proper, of what is the right thing to do. She's saying, if I found favor in your eyes, and if it seems like the right thing to do, then let another edict be written that revokes the first one, the one that was written by Haman. And she's stressing here wisely that Haman was the author of the plot. And so, again, carefully omitting any role that Ahasuerus played in the first edict. And again, she does this showing regard to the king's opinion, which is something that Haman never did. 
Verse 6 continues, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now this is certainly emotional. She cannot imagine enduring the pain of watching her people be destroyed. And we have to remember here, Esther is safe. She is not under a threat of being killed any longer. We, we come away from chapter 7 understanding nothing bad is going to happen to Esther. The king is going to not let anything happen to her. His rage at the thought of it in 7 and then his rage, his wrath subduing at the death of Haman assures us Esther is safe now. But she cannot imagine the thought of seeing her people destroyed. And so she is pleading with the king here. If I have found favor in your eyes, if, if, if you see that this is the right thing to do, then please intervene. Please save, because how can I bear seeing my people killed? Verses 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now it refers here to Mordecai as Mordecai the Jew, which is which is similar to the book of Ruth when Ruth is often referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. It's, it's an ethnic designation of one character that stands out in contrast to all of the other characters. The king is speaking to Esther and Mordecai together. And so when he says you, it's to the both of them. It's plural. They are the earthly heroes who author the proclamation that will save the Jews. Now, I use that word heroes very cautiously because we are people who are prone, very prone to making humans heroes throughout the Bible. God is using them to do this. And he alone is the hero of of this story. If you've been here throughout this series and you are not landing on that at this point, I have failed you miserably. God is the hero and the only true hero in this story. But from the perspective of Ahasuerus, from the perspective of the Jewish people, he is speaking to Mordecai and Esther as those who are the heroes from an earthly perspective. And we have, to, we have to understand, and this goes throughout the Scriptures, God using them doesn't mean that they are godly. 
by saying here that, that the edict cannot be revoked. The king assures them that their new edict has full legal authority. It will be accomplished. Whatever it is they write and whatever it is they seal and whatever it is they send will be accomplished. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language." So Mordecai has this new edict written in the king's name and sealed with the royal seal, and he is the one in possession of the signet ring, and therefore he is the one able to do it. And whereas Haman has no concern for Jewish interests in his edict that is sent out, he wanted all of the Jews killed because of one man who he could not stand and who wouldn't stand in his presence. Now, in this new edict, Jewish interests are central. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. They get the very best royal bred horses to ensure delivery of this new edict. Verses 11 and 12, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, this new edict enabled Jews to assemble and to protect themselves, to stand up for themselves. They can defend themselves against an attack. Now, this is important. They are given permission in the new edict to fight for their lives against anyone who would attack them on that day. The author is trying to show that this edict is an exact reversal of the Jews' fortune. It's almost an exact reversal of Haman's edict. Gary Smith writes concerning the edict, For all practical purposes, the effect of the new decree gave the Jews legal protection to fight back stripping any attackers of a favored legal position. Nevertheless, it did not remove the threat against the Jewish people. So there is still a possibility that on that day, the Persian people will, will heed the first edict that gives them permission to attack the Jews. And now the Jews have permission and legal authority to defend themselves against attack. And we should ask here, what would the Jews have done if this second edict is not sent out? Like, would the Jews have otherwise stood by passively as they were attacked? 
Did they desire to follow the law so intently that they would have let themselves and their families be killed? We don't know the answer to that across all of the Jewish people, but certainly many would have attempted to fight back. It seems like the second decree decree is not so much to give the Jews the idea of fighting back or to defend themselves as to serve as a deterrent to those who might attack them. And it says in it, it includes women and children. This is, this is an exact reversal of Haman's edict. It's a part of that reversal. And so the stipulations that were in Haman's edict are also included in Mordecai's edict. But it's, it's bad, right? We can acknowledge that it's bad to even read, go ahead and kill women and children also. It is, it's detasteful even if it was a normal practice in the ancient world world because even even though we have commas and and the way it's separated in the English version here, it's not saying that should women and children attack you, which was extremely unlikely in that culture, kill them too. It It is saying that as an extension of the male, kill the women and children, the family unit. And it was common in that culture. It was common to have that, but it is hard to read. And it's difficult. And yet our hope at this point is that it's written in the edict only to counter what was written in Haman's edict. And then it says to plunder. Again, this is a reversal. The original edict provided for the plundering of the Jewish possessions, and so this one allows the Jews to plunder the possessions of their enemies. Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Now, that that expression, to take vengeance, is probably better translated to say avenge themselves. The Hebrew term there for that does not signify senseless killing, but rather justified retaliation. Michael Fox's words, uh, that word everywhere designates a punitive action and presupposes a prior wrong. Again, so it should be avenge themselves, meaning the Jewish people had the right to defend themselves if they were attacked. They're permitted to fight back against anyone who sought to harm them. And so, verse 14, the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. So, the messengers hurry out because uh, they have to, right? More urgently than what took place in 315 when the first edict is sent out because there is less time now from when this edict is sent out from the citadel to all of the provinces than there was before. The, The scheduled destruction date is coming much sooner. 
And so they rush out with this edict with the fastest horses that they have. And then we have this kind of turning point in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now, Mordecai's outfit here reminds us of both Joseph and Daniel. Genesis 41, 42, it speaks of Joseph. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. We read of Daniel in the book of Daniel that he was clothed in purple and had a gold chain placed around his neck signifying that he rules as one of the three in the kingdom. You notice this. What happened after Haman's edict is sent out? Mordecai, upon hearing it, dresses in mourning garb. He dresses in sackcloth and ashes and is in despair. Now we have this incredible, beautiful reversal where Mordecai's own edict is sent out and he is dressed in royal splendor. And now the city in Susa is united again. There's no distinguishing of Jews at the end of verse 15 from other inhabitants. The time uh, now is this mood of joyous celebration. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And then verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy, and honor. The Jews had light, and gladness, and joy, and honor. Those four words, light, gladness, joy, and honor, are are the antithesis of the four words in Esther 4, verse 3, after the first edict, which were mourning, and fasting, and weeping, and lamenting. Their time of sorrow has been completely reversed. It is a new day with new joy in the hearts of the people. Verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday and Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is amazing. As this new edict reaches each province, the Jews there rejoice because they know that they have been saved. That's important. It's going to be important as we go into next week's text. They know at this point they have been saved. It says, many from the peoples of the country, referring to people of the Persian Empire who are not Jews, many of them, it says, declared themselves Jews. Now, again, this might not be the best translation. The meaning is not crystal clear, but the meanings range from they pretended to be Jews to they made themselves Jews. 
they identified themselves with the Jewish people. They sided with the Jews, and likely many of them pretended to be Jews. Why? Because they were afraid. They now are fearing. Better translation is probably they professed to be Jews because it can carry the various ideas associated with the term, including pretending to be Jews and identifying with the Jews. The emphasis here is not on religion. This is not, not saying that people converted to Judaism. It's on ethnic identification. Remember, this is a book in which any mention of religious practice is avoided. There is none. So we don't want to read too much into the text. The Jews were glad and joyful. As we finish this chapter and look to the end of the book next week, what are the takeaways? What can we learn about God and the gospel? We've done this every week. We strive to look at this, even, even as I've just mentioned. This is a book that avoids religious talk. There's no mention of God there's no mention of the law. There's no mention of anything that we would attribute to Judaism or to Christianity in the book. But each week we're striving to look at it and say, what can we learn? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about the gospel? What are the takeaways? And so first, again, let me ask you something as you consider this text. Consider the scene of Queen Esther before the king pleading on behalf of others for their salvation. You think about that. Esther was safe. Esther was saved. We know that by the end of chapter 7. The king's wrath against Haman Haman then is killed. Esther will not die at the hands of the Persians. She was saved. And she could have been content with that. She could have been content with her own salvation. But she wasn't. And so we ought to ask as we consider our own salvation, are we content with that? Are we just so happy and thankful, and we should be, that we are saved, but then careless about others, thoughtless about others? How much am I pleading on behalf of others for their salvation? Am I just secure in the fact I know, God, you saved me and I am going to heaven and that is great and that is the end of it? Or am I moved to desperate pleading for the sake of those still in darkness and death? 
Esther was not just concerned about her own survival, but the survival of her people as well. So I would ask you, do you have genuine concern for non-Christians? Do you have genuine concern for non-Christians? Think about that. Genuine concern for them. Or are you just mad about how they talk or how they vote? Philippians 3.18, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul wept for those who needed to be delivered. Esther wept and pleaded for those who needed to be delivered. The question for us is, do we? The gospel changes us. The gospel should change us. It should change us into those who look at the world with loving eyes and look to the Lord pleading for them to be saved, for His mercy to be poured out on them. Remember in Ephesians 1 where Paul is just throughout verses 3 through 14, this one-sentence proclamation of praise that he gives, and in the midst of it, he says that, 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 that God has lavished His grace on us. Is that our earnest pleading and desire for others? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been called to be those people. We've been formed, shaped, saved, rescued into being those people. So consider the shadows of the gospel here in Esther 8. In the beginning of the chapter, Mordecai is given an audience with the king because of his relationship to Esther and not on his own merit. He's given an audience with the king because of who he is related to. That is true of us. It's a picture of the gospel. We are given an audience with God only because of and only based on our relationship with Christ. Nothing more. It's not on our own merit. In fact, it's in spite of what we have done. Later in the text, we see this great reversal. Haman's edict brought about mourning. Mordecai's edict brought about great joy, and Mordecai is dressed then in royal splendor. How true is that of us because of the gospel? The edict against us is what? Against all of us is what? 
guilty and death. The wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the story. Someone else took our place. Jesus died so that we might live. And then another edict is written about us, which is innocent and life everlasting. And just as the new edict brought royal splendor to Mordecai, we are clothed with new garments, righteous garments. We are clothed with the perfections of Christ. And even further, where there was mourning and weeping and lamenting when Christ wrote a new edict concerning us, which is innocent, our mourning is turned to happiness and joy and gladness and honor. I think it's so easy to forget what was true of us. It's why we can become less concerned with the world and angrier with the world. Because we forget what was true of us. We were people lost and blind. And God did something and we did nothing. Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and on the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the hope of the new edict written for you and for me. And the hope that we hold out for any and all who don't yet know him. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. We do that remembering what Christ has done. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. What cross? The cross that he himself walked willingly to, to suffer and die on our behalf. He was nailed to the cross. And the record that stood against us was nailed in him. He bore it. He took the weight of the suffering. He took the punishment for us. And so when Jesus gathers with his apostles and breaks bread with them and passes the cup with them and says, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that is broken for you. This is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He's referring to that. What was accomplished for us on the cross Forgiveness, restoration, salvation, joy, happiness. And so as 
as you're dismissed to come and receive the bread and the cup and go back to your seat, let's remember rightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. His body was broken. We go free. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're here today and you don't know personally that joy and happiness and, 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 and those true things that come from knowing Christ, then my encouragement to you is then when, when the rows are dismissed, then just stay there. And, and instead of coming and, and taking the symbols that we partake of to remember the truths of the gospel, my hope for you is that you would partake of Jesus today. One of the things that Paul tells us about taking the Lord's Supper is we, we do it as a proclamation. As often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so if if you're here and you don't delight in those things, you don't delight in the death of Jesus, you don't delight in His blood being poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, then, then truly it's not something you would want to proclaim to other people. And so my encouragement to you is just wait through this time and, and participate in the service by just asking God to show you Himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good and every single thing you do is good. And we are absolutely unworthy of any of it. The wages of sin is death. We confess to you, Lord, we deserve that. And yet, Jesus, you stepped forward to take the wages of our sin upon yourself willingly. Your body was broken in my place. Your blood was poured out in my place and for the forgiveness of my sins. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for grace and mercy that comes from you perfectly. We ask you to help us in this time, Lord. We don't want to waste these moments taking the Lord's Supper together, Lord. We don't want to get used to this. We don't want it to just be another thing that we do in the service. Father, we want to honor you, and we want to remember rightly, and we want to worship you in spirit and truth, and we want to proclaim together the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, you died and that you are coming again. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.